Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, Igmar Simatova, happy, healthy, and sweet new year to you, and welcome back to JM and the AM. And Gmar uh, Simatova to all the listeners in an easy fast, and uh, let's hope that uh, the weekly updates will be full of happy news in this year. Yeah, there's the potential for that. There could be some happy news. A lot of news this week, that's for sure. The Prime Minister of Israel uh, spoke at the United Nations. And, you know, um, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Malcolm, or not, but it did not have the luster of previous speeches that the Prime Minister has made at the U.N. And I think, like any like any good Yankee or Red Sox fan would know, if Ahmadinejad is not in the building, if there's not that high-profile enemy to juxtapose your speech with, it's just not as powerful and doesn't get the same attention. you agree? Well, I would say there are several factors. One is that Netanyahu spoke towards the end of the proceedings when the high-level people were there, which was the week before, because of Rosh Hashanah. So he came mostly right after the Rosh Hashanah holiday, flew it Saturday night, got here Sunday, spoke Monday, uh, and was in New York Tuesday, met with the conference and our leadership, uh, amongst other things that he was doing here. The next day he flew to Washington, met President Obama, and yesterday, uh, midday, they flew back. Uh, so the UN, A, w- was not abuzz with the leaders coming in, shoving one another aside. Uh, number two, it, you know, it was already after all the other speeches, uh, but the, the, ringing words of Zarif of Iran and of Abbas of the PA and other lovers of Israel were still there. You could hear them echoing in the halls. Yeah, understood, but they're not Ahmadinejad. They're not getting up there and basically saying they want to murder every Jew, you know what I mean? They're I not. Think, they're, I think Netanyahu's speech, by the way, uh, in and of itself, it, it wasn't a great oratorical flourish, but it was a very strong and important statement, and People stopped us, uh, including a famous actor, uh, on the street and just said, your guy did great. That's exactly what needs to be said. And you heard broadcasters who rarely get into political things saying that this is the kind of message it needed to name names. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, look, as a speech, I I agree with that. It was not very powerful, and the... uh uh, the, the props have got to go. Whoever's advising him on that, they got to get rid of that. And the Derek Jeter reference was ridiculous, although it gave me an opportunity to get a lot of retweets, I'll tell you that much. But you're right that the, he, 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 he made it as simple as possible. He broke it down and basically outlined for the world who the enemy is. The problem is, I don't think anybody, including the man he met with the next day in the White House, understands what's going on. Because with all this that he described, the President of the United States is still concerned about housing and building in Jerusalem and not focus on who the enemy is and who wants to destroy the Western world. Well, I think the the reaction to the announcement was certainly disproportionate and the language used inappropriate. They talk about poisonous and, you know, the, the friends of Israel turning against it. It's true that some of the Europeans and others have, re, have reacted to it, but uh, Netanyahu's statement was, guys, to get the facts, this was a, a two-year-old uh, approved plan that and a technical move, really a, another zoning step. It's not construction. That this was privately built, privately purchased land. That Arabs sell land to Jews, um, and does not disqualify Jews from then being able to live there. 
when Jews sell to Arabs in the West, in West Jerusalem or in other areas, nobody complains about it, that this prop project would be open to Arabs to buy as well. And he said, I'm not going to tell any Jews that they can't live in apartments in Jerusalem. Right. And I think that that is really, and, and the message each time, and how it could be, you know, the timing, and he blamed uh, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, in particular, I think, uh, the Selma piece now, for revealing the information while he was abroad. Uh, but the, the one can dispute, you can argue, debate any issue, but you got to keep it in proportion about what, what, given all of the issues that we face. Now, the President of the United really States, President of the United States, you know, in order to represent the democratic, uh, you know, atmosphere of this country the right way, should be out there saying that Jews have a right, and anybody has a right to live wherever they want as long as it's illegally. And instead, it's, uh, you know, it's the focus of all his anger uh, regarding Israel and the Prime Minister. The whole thing is ridiculous. Well, it's not, it's not a focus of all his anger. I think he has, he better have some anger for some of the other things. And one of the things we pointed out was that on the Rosh Hashanah, 40 graves on the Harazetim were destroyed and vandalized. And the cameras burnt by what are believed to be contract hits from, from by kids who was paid for by Hamas. Uh, and nobody condemns, and, and many of these graves belong to uh, people who came from the United States or a family in the United States. And you don't hear condemnation of that, and that it, it underscores what Netanyahu said in the UN about the comparison between Hamas and IS, which again the administration uh, criticized, saying that they're not comparable. Yet, but they, what he was saying is, look, they come from the same core, they have the same core beliefs, and here you have them, like Hamas, uh, uh, ordering the destruction of these of the of these graves, um, like IS, which is destroying the sites of every religion. Wherever they go, right. Well, they're equivalent groups. I agree with you. It's a tragic episode and one that you know we have to react to. I agree with you 100. percent But as Malcolm Holmline always reminds us, we're even more concerned about those living Jews. And that was the, 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 the that was the point of Netanyahu's speech is to describe who the enemy is and what they're ready to do and how they how they want to basically you know take over the world. And th- that is what is most disturbing about the American and other reactions, you know, among Western countries, is that they won't even allow Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS to be lumped in together. They all have to, there always has to be, you know, a more moderate wing of the terrorists. The whole thing is absurd. Well, you know, there is a lack of understanding about who these groups are, what their connections are, who's on which side, and, and the more names and initials that are thrown out. You know, we now have the Khorasan group, which some people say may not even really be a group, but it, it was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda now is in competition with ISIS because they've been shunted aside. Now they want to regain credibility and and visibility, uh, also because it, it, it determines recruitment uh, when ISIS is draining all these young people away from other groups. So they all escalate their activities, and this is really a branch of al-Nusra, branch of Al-Qaeda, and the the emphasis on it uh, shows that people don't necessarily uh, understand and what the purpose is. This is really a group trained to carry out attacks abroad, and they went there to Iraq to to train young people, to recruit and train young people, but to carry out attacks outside of Iraq, especially we believe in the West. When you watch the Western world 
and their reaction, how, how it seems they're not paying attention to the words of the prime minister, for instance, in this case, does it help you better understand what happened before World War II in Europe and then eventually when the United States got involved? When I see it combined with the anti-Semitism and how you know, political issues morph right away into anti-Semitism, the refusal to face up to the challenge and the threats that we heard again from uh, from Iran now over the last 24 hours to threaten Israel's existence and calling on all the Arabs to unite against it. But I, I see them doing the same thing to Christians and executing them in much larger numbers and threatening them or threatening other uh, every minority. Yeah. And we see the, the encroachments everywhere. There just seems to be a lack of will, a lack of interest, a lack of understanding when Yemen, which I discussed on this show for many weeks, and unfortunately last week couldn't take credit for all the warnings that we <laughs> issued, I literally on, on a weekly basis saying that I said it's going. I spoke to people there, and nobody cares that the government that of, of Yemen is now in the hands of Iran's um, fully subsidized offshoot, the Houthis. They control all the area from the capital to, to the border of of Saudi Arabia and people who don't think it's important take a look at a map and see where they control the straits one side now you have Yemen and the government in the hands of of these Houthis who are extremists uh, <laughs> Zaydi Shiites and and on the other side you have Somalia and through that area goes the majority of the West oil shipping from from uh, the Middle East and the the uh, other end of the straits are in the hands of Iran with the Straits of Hormuz. So theoretically, it could control both sides. Think of what's going to happen with Oman and how this can become a base of operation, right. let alone the threat to Saudi Arabia. Right, but you've always said that um, th- 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 there would be limited... Uh, there would be limited action on their part to uh, to block the Straits because of the money that's involved, right? Yeah, I said about the Straits of Hormuz, but now with Iran threatening action about the sanctions, if the sanctions continue, if we don't remove them. That would be their retaliation. Right, and this gives them additional leverage now. Uh, by the way, on the Christian thing that you just mentioned, I spoke to someone yesterday who was born in Nazareth, and I said, wow, how interesting. I said to her, you know, you grew up in an area that has the, you know, the world's three major religions. You know, it must be very interesting to, to be in that area of Israel. She said, you know, if you think the Muslims hate the Jews, they hate the Christians ten times more. I thought that was an interesting observation from someone who grew up in it. It's absolutely true. And you know that, that many of the Christians, their children, go and serve in the IDF and then become the, set, the, the subject of harassment and of uh, threats because of it. Unbelievable. Um, JM and the AM, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmam.org. Erev Yom Kippur weekly update with Malcolm Honlai. Now, my point about the, uh, the the reference to, you know, 100 years ago or close to 100 years ago in the atmosphere before, I guess, you know, 100 years ago would be World War One, but you know what I mean, the pre-World War II era in Europe, is that, um, and Netanyahu, he may even have said this. I don't know if it, if it would be a quote. He certainly alluded to it. It sounded like he was saying to the West, you know, we've seen a madman, you know, tell us about taking over the world. And, of course, he had all the quotes about what the, you know, radical Islam folks want to do in terms of taking over the world. Uh, but it sounded like he was saying, if you think Hitler was something, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
Is, is that is that was that the right attitude that he was trying to portray? That if you think what happened in the 20th century was a disaster, we're heading towards something much much worse. Well, because also you have different means. You didn't have you know the widespread proliferation of nuclear capacity. You have also so many hot points at one time. You know, it was one thing when you're in the middle of the war and and things happen, but here you have the proliferation of amongst a much larger group than the Nazis ever had, a number of followers, number of potential uh, supporters, right. with the power and money that they have. It's unbelievable. The numbers are, there's no comparison. And people don't realize how large the enemy is. And, and how big its potential and its ability to draw on young people and to have this kind of a radical but religious-based appeal right and the the fervor with which they operate and the desire to kill and as you just said the ease god forbid with which they could if they were if they were capable you know on a, on a nuclear level if they were capable to do so one of the things i always I, i've said this to you a million times uh you know when i was growing up it was the old you know we know khrushchev's never going to push the button in this case we're dealing with people who could push the button you know what i mean if they had the button believe me right now they'd be pushing it they have no compunction you see that they don't care about killing somebody pointed out that the nazis at least try to hide their crimes right in some instances these guys advertise right there are videos all around the world they'll put every individual uh, uh execution on, on on video on display for everybody if you want and the training of young people to do this and the the kind of education and the fact that beheading has now become the major recruitment tool so you have beheadings in yemen in, in, in uh, sinai in Lebanon, in Syria, in all these places where they want to uh, draw people, let alone we had a beheading here in the United States. That's right. That uh, it becomes something uh, as an attraction, as fashionable. It's, it's horrific to think about it. Yeah, unbelievable. So, so this meeting with the president, the prime minister and the president, I mean, I, I don't think the prime minister felt it was a waste of time, but in some ways it, it seems like this message is never penetrating. This is the leader of the Western world. He's really the only person, when you think about it, who could put a stop to any of this. And I know the allies are in Syria. Are, are they making progress there? You know, We're at war now with ISIS. Have we made a dent in this effort at all? Well, I think we have made some them, but we're not. It's not enough of an effort yet to to stop the advancement. They, they are supposedly in Iraq, one mile from Baghdad. They are uh, moving in on uh, uh, Kobani the, near the Turkish border. It's nine miles from the border. The um, and and the, although there's some turnaround in, in some of the smaller villages, the fact is that the major thrust of of uh, ISIS has not been stopped. You know, just compare it. Israel flew 200 sorties a day during the war, and they're flying 11 sorties a day, maybe 15 uh, now with some other countries joining. And when they hit a, a silo and it takes civilian lives, it's interesting to note that, the, that the, how they waived the uh, requirement about avoiding civilian casualties, <laughs> that the restrictions that were imposed. Yeah, you, remember, you remember the summer with Israel? Outbreak. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. And how many weeks ago was that? That Israel was suffering in the headlines, the, on, on that topic. They still suffer in the headlines. Of and course, threats to take him to the International Criminal Court for it, and uh, a lack of sympathy in the West about what Israel was up against, but not thousands of miles away, you know, within driving distance, so that people visited their sons and brought them food every night. 
So what does he say? President Obama sits there with the prime minister. Does he say to him, we are aware of the problem, but there's only limited action we can take? We're aware of the problem that's going to be stepped up. Or or does he sit and deny it and say, you know, it's not nearly as bad as you paint, Mr. Prime Minister? What is he saying to him in that room? Well, I wasn't there, but I, I have spoken to people who about the meetings, and I, I think that they have a better discussion than people uh, tend to believe. It. I'm sure it gets uh, intense at points, but uh, you know, when they talk about the golden ISIS, they, they share the goal. The question is the implementation when it comes to concern about Jordan, concern about uh, Israel's northern border with, with Hezbollah and uh, other players, and, and al-Nusra now coming to control the Syrian side of it, or uh, the events in, in, um, in Gaza and Sinai. Uh, I, I would like to also have heard a discussion between President Sisi and uh, President Obama, which uh, might have been very interesting, depending upon how frank they they were, because there is a lot of tension and resentment about the pressures that are brought to bear and uh, what people sometimes feel is a lack of understanding of the plight that others uh, face in the West in general. And I think that that, um, Netanyahu described the meetings as as good. You saw that some of the public statements, uh, the quick criticism about... uh, the housing development in Jerusalem, um, then each time escalates and gets a lot of attention, whereas all the positive steps, whether it's on Iron Dome, the discussions uh, obviously dealt with that and expanding it, et cetera, are the good news, good things don't get any coverage. Yeah, what was the first? I have it here somewhere. Um, where is here? Prime Minister Netanyahu raised the tantalizing prospect that a new Arab alliance could resuscitate Israel's moribund peace talks with the Palestinians. But President Obama responded with a familiar complaint that Jewish settlements are the real problem. That's the first paragraph of the New York Times story regarding that meeting. And, the, the you know, we saw two interesting things. One, that President Obama in his speech to the United Nations said that the Palestinian-Israeli issues, those who argue that that is the central issue, have been proven wrong, and that we see that it becomes an excuse for, for countries to meet their responsibilities by keep saying, well, you solved the Palestinian-Israeli issue. It wasn't so long ago that members of his administration were, say, were saying that, but uh, I think it's an important uh, statement. And the same thing is true in settlements. You know, it's an irritant to people. It, it can be, uh, there can be good debates about it. Uh, people critical. First of all, there's no construction in this case. In, in the last few cases, and this is a zoning changes, and there was talk about other uh, projects, many of which are private, yeah. funded and privately built. So See, it's not a government decision. Yeah, a lot of people don't like when we do this, when we get into the you know the technical aspect of it, because the the answer is you know they have a right to build there, and that's the end of it. And I don't know if the you know the zoning and technical aspect yeah, of it. Because if you want to answer, and those who take the time to call the media have to have facts. You can't just say, well, it's not important. It is important. People have made it important. But if you can uh, undermine the argument and show why. The contentions are, are and, and again, it has nothing to do with whether people want to politically debate it, but if they want to answer, and they should be answering these charges, they have to know the facts. Yeah, understood, but it sounds like when, when we say, you know, it's a zoning thing and not construction thing, that if it was a construction thing, then maybe, you know, there would be a legitimate complaint against it. No, I, I was saying that the reason the Prime Minister cited these things was to, to show that, that the argument put forward in the statement by the State Department, etc., was not really... Uh, right, it was, a fl- it, was a, it was a flawed argument. It was based on incorrect facts. 
Uh, what's the reality of um, of the uh, possibility of Saudi Arabia and other Sunni Arab states combining with Israel to uh, to fight off ISIS? Is this a was this a, re- a realistic um, uh, conjecture by the Prime Minister that other Arab states would align with Israel at this point? Well, I can tell you that I met some during the week, uh, including President Sisi and others, uh, and uh, I think that there's a very different attitude towards Israel. It doesn't mean that it's a long; it will last long, or that other demands won't change things back, or that you know they they don't continue to pursue their interests. But right now, they see, and I think it's reflected in the fact that it, during the 51 days of the war in Israel and uh, Gaza, there wasn't dem- there were no demonstrations in the Arab streets in in Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Egypt, Jordan. If you remember the last time in 2006, 2008, the kind of manifestations and some getting very violent. Here you did not have it. Right. And and is there a shift and a recognition? Yes. And I think the president's comments on the centrality of this issue as opposed to others, I think the comments we've heard from, from other leaders reflect the fact that there is a, 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 a different context that they're looking at this uh, at this moment doesn't mean it won't change right. but netanyahu is saying look i don't have a partner in abbas he, he's uh, and and many of the people we met with even including arab leaders nobody has confidence that abbas will make a deal they say he's 79 you know he's looking to his retirement others talk about uh, them you know just trying to stash money for his uh, his kids and his future um i i think that what netanyahu is saying look maybe the answer lies in a broader approach to peace which has been proposed for a long time, uh, and that now, given the new relationships, and, and the fact is that President Sisi pointed something out, which I thought was important. He said, who would have thought 30 years ago that a 1,000 Egyptian tanks would be introduced into Sinai with Israel's permission, mm-hmm. and the Egyptian aircraft are flying along the Israeli border, and nobody worries about a stray bullet. Right. That's true. Sometimes you have to look back and, uh, you know, sometimes you have to look at the entire picture and you realize how different things are these days. You know, when obviously when Israel was at the height of the Intifada and people were being blown up in all the different venues in Israel, uh, things really hit home when the, uh, you know, when, 9, when the 9-11 attacks took place here in the United States, people here started to understand somewhat of what Israel was going through. Now I, now, I know ISIS is here, quote-unquote. You've told us that a million times, and we know that that's accurate. But is, is it going to take some type of drastic attack, God forbid, in one of our major cities or, I don't know, some type of you know um, uh, ISIS-type uh, action to really wake up people here on this side of the world? We did have it in 9-11, and we've had many instances since. We see the trials that are taking place on a regular basis. It's not that it isn't happening here. People just don't pay attention to it and don't think of the consequences of, of the actions that, thank God, are prevented or that, that uh, people who, who were involved in terrorist attacks abroad and came here illegally. And uh, w- once you kill, it doesn't, there's nothing to stop you from doing it again. And the infiltration across our borders, the, the open borders that we have, the vulnerable borders, I should say, and the uh, uh, concerns that that uh, are manifest are if somebody speaks about these things openly. We've had programs just this week in universities where you know people are accused of being Islamophobic because they talk about Islamist uh, uh, tendencies of the Islamists. They don't talk about 
Islam, they talk about those who are engaged in this kind of practice. Nobody should be defending that and and pointing it out and making a distinction between them and the rest of the Muslim community is important. But they're they're shut down, they they're uh, harassed, and and universities and colleges, including some very close to people listening to this show, uh, have succumbed to these pressures. And and what happens to free speech? What happens? I agree. If somebody's a hater and inciting. That's one thing. But when you have legitimate people going to speak and and because they identify and they talk about you know the legal ramifications we talk about lawfare we talk about you know the threats the the security threats i mean this is ridiculous 9-11 was different though because it was so you know it was such a you know a punch to the gut here in the united states the biggest liberals were were you know who would never want to enter a war were yelling and screaming we gotta go get these guys that's why i'm saying that you know is it going to take another major episode on that type of scale to wake everybody up because no one's paying attention to what's going on here already. Well, police and, and law enforcement, I think the NYPD deserve special credit for this. They do pay attention, and I think they take these threats very seriously because they see it. They see the arrests that are made. They see the, the trials that have taken place where information comes out about the ties of people who, who come to this country with to Pakistan, to, to uh, others, to Saudi Arabia, to other uh, places where they get support, financing, and perhaps involvement in, in directly or indirectly in terrorist activities and threats to, to the homeland. Yeah, I know. They do a great job. By the way, um, for those of us who um, are shocked whenever the mayor of New York City meets with Jewish leadership, I was glad to see that he met with the Prime Minister of Israel this week. By the way, why is Israel so focused in the media about whether we won, we meaning Israel, using that loosely, whether we won the war this summer or not. Is there any other country that has this, maybe because it's Arab Yom Kippur and there's a lot of introspection, is there any other country that spends this amount of time in the media analyzing whether this summer war was won or not? Well, because you have a, a, a campaign that goes on, the Israeli press, as you know, is very open, very free, and very critical generally. Um, they were not during the war. There was a real sense of unity, which begins to unravel now. But the um, uh, the need to to be able to put this in the right uh, context about you know did Hamas, which claims a victory, I mean here you have a party that was so roundly defeated, and yet the press and others continue to to report and to play up their message that they somehow emerged from this. Uh, uh, Victorious, and you know the the, the Israelis, uh, IDF, or intelligence sources said that they're back to manufacturing rockets, and they're going to test. They tested five rockets into the sea. Uh, we don't know really how much of that capacity they retain, but clearly enough that uh, it is of concern, and that they um, uh, continue to manufacture and, and maybe tunnels and tunnels in the north. And so. Israel reasserts this to be able to to say that you can confront terrorism, you can deal with them, you can deliver them uh, a very severe blow. It's not a knockout blow, and that that is part of the problem is that they can come back unless Israel's given the ability and the international community assures no rearmament and eventually disarmament. Yeah, you use a weekly update segment on Erev Yom Kippur to tell me that the unity in Israel is unraveling. I said the remarkable demonstrations and in introducing the prime and when I spoke to the prime minister at his meeting with the conference, um, uh, I made mention of that of the immense uh, demonstrations here, there, everywhere, 
of the achdut, of the unity, uh, which is really relevant to Yom Kippur, where we play in the plural and we, we talk about uh, collectivity in addition to whatever individual uh, sins we acknowledge or pleas that we, that we want to make. And unfortunately, we see already how the political divisions emerge and the, the you know, everybody hopes that this thing can, this kind of sense of, of unity will remain and, and people celebrated it so much and still celebrated and people tell me Israelis all the time about how amazing it was and how people came together that's what Achtos, that's what unity is about, why it's so important, why we talk about it and that the, when, when we are together, the strength that emerges from that, the compassion, the caring the support for one another but the strength also so on this era of Yom Kippur, that's the uh, that's what we need to step up. We need to reignite that amazing unified effort that everybody had during the summer and the feeling of unity. That and remember had. the threats. Look, we, we hardly talk about Iran. Iran launched all sorts of new missiles that, or and described all sorts of new missiles that they uh, that they have. But they are still moving. We're still facing the November twenty fourth deadline, and they they are supposedly using the Parchin facility, which we've talked about to test. Uh, nuclear detonation uh, technology. Uh, I won't go into the details, <laughs> but but we see it on so many. Uh, I, I'm laughing because the State Department spokesman this week. This was the attitude that she had. It was it was essentially don't talk to me till November 24th. You know, like that's the magic date that you, you don't have to worry about it. Nothing can happen before then, and certainly there's nothing we have to investigate or worry about until we get the official report at that time. It's ridiculous. Well, the. Um we did meet with the negotiators uh, from the United States and participants in the talks. And uh, my, my, the problems I see there emerging is whether there will be a unified standard. There seems to be some relaxation. There are a lot of country, countries who say they will not be left behind. Iran is pressing to remove the sanctions. Some countries, you know, are assisting them. The, the fall of their uh, currency is, has been somewhat stopped, although they're economic conditions are terrible and they are are pressing very hard to uh, restore the tensions between them and Turkey over Turkey's involvement. ISIS could affect the way Turkey uh, uh, helps them. But look at what happened with ISIS. ISIS took over Raqqa in Syria and an area around Mosul where the oil is produced in both Iraq and Syria. They are exporting millions and millions of dollars in oil every day. The major purchases of the Syrian oil are the Assad regime, which they're in a death battle with, Kurdish middlemen, and the rest goes through the border of Turkey and gets out to be sold. So it is almost ludicrous when you look at this and you see how the enemies come together because of economic motivation and interest and people who who make money off of it. The great unifying factor, huh? And then you say, you know, what well, what will be the case with with Iran? Will they keep lowering? We saw all these reports, you know, to disconnect the pipes, which is silly. The other things, uh, you know, we talk about the breakout period, meaning the period between once we discover that they're already moving towards it and, and the time they'd be able to, to have a, a nuclear weapon. It's not that. It's the capability, and that's why Israel always pressed on the capability issue, not the, the uh, possession of a weapon. And we've seen somewhat of an erosion. They now have six filmmakers in Iran that are going out to make films to show that any deal is better than no deal. Uh, Phil Gordon, who's the coordinator for Middle East at the National Security Council, spoke about 
a deal could could start the way to re, towards resuming negotiations. It'll be complicated, it made all the appropriate uh, conditions. But the very fact that we're talking about uh, that rather than there is an absolute requirement. We have seven Security Council resolutions, what Iran must do. And we don't have to reward them. We have to show them that they're going to suffer much more. And the people of, of Iran have to be encouraged to speak up and to, to do what they can despite the you know, this dictatorial regime and, and uh, that, that uh, runs the place, and there's still the efforts to paint uh, uh, Zarif and, and uh, Rouhani and all the men's moderates when we know that it's Khamenei alone who calls the shots, and that the, the, um, uh, they keep raising the demands on what they want in terms of the number of centrifuges. And the fear is that the West's position, and I heard this from Western leaders, is going to erode. Yeah. Could you give us, I know you hate predictions, but post-November the 24th, November 25th, uh, what's going to be the world reaction? I mean, is this just going to be another postponement, another, uh, you know, n- not giving uh, you know much credence to whatever negative reports come out about Iran? Well, I can say that the U.S. officials have assured us they're not going to buy an extension, uh, except if it's a couple of days just to finish some details. And if they keep pressing and they show that they're credible in the threats, and, and they continue to move on sanctions, et cetera, uh, that uh, uh, Iran will come to, to ultimately to uh, a, a decision. And the, the fact is that the, they have to show, we have to demonstrate that talks are going to begin in, in another week, uh, two weeks, within the next two weeks again. If we don't show them that the terms are absolute, that the obfuscation not going to work, mm. that the, the demands are absolute, and we're going to live up to the requirements, as the president said, as the, the negotiators from the United States and other countries have said. But there are experts on this who have been involved in this process who tell me that's not what's happening. I think that that is what everybody wants to see happen, but because we're dis- you know distracted by ISIL, Iran takes advantage of it, holds out the, the carrot that they will get involved in this if we drop the sanctions and if we do other things, they want that dropped even before the negotiations conclude as a condition for their involvement. And that has been rejected. But then every once in a while you see another statement come out saying, well, we could be open to, to their involvement again in this in this process. And they keep saying, we're not interested in working with you. Yeah. I don't know. Not much confidence about the uh, United States and their leadership role in this. It seems that when there's a negotiating team, the Iranians always out-negotiate us. <laughs> well, they have thousands of years of experience. And I'm trouble <laughs> when I said that they're Hazaris, and, uh, which is not an insult. It is a compliment to them, and it's, uh, it's the reality is that they are very sharp. They, they're sharp negotiators, but they have a, a clear... When you have somebody who says an absolute no, then... You, you, you are, you have to face that reality and either give into it or you have to try to, to wear it down. If the West is not seeing as having absolute positions, and that's part of the problem, if, if we, we don't come across as committed and ready to carry out all of the requirements of, and the support for, quote, all options being on the table or no deal, uh, uh, bad deal is worse than no deal and we will take the the consequences uh, seriously, and we will move ahead. If they believe that, and if they believe they're not going to be able to wiggle and find ways around it, and if Russia and China 
don't continue to give them leeway by, by buying uh, oil and, and helping them bypass uh, some of the restrictions uh, and maybe even more incentivized for Russia now because of the, the, they're not trading with Ukraine and the limitations have been placed and the sanctions on Russia so that they find a common cause with, uh, with Iran in this and, and trying to compensate there. It's very complicated. Oh, it certainly is. By the, but before we wrap up, did the PA get any closer to uh, uh, to PA statehood in this session of the UN, or those threats were ended up being nothing? Oh no, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Now, when does that happen? Very important, and I'm, I'm going to raise it because we're during the time we're off the air in the next couple of weeks. Uh, this issue will will be uh, faced, and and there are various steps. First, uh, Abbas is threatening to go to the Security Council. They drafted language for a resolution. They want a deadline set for 2016, by which time negotiations have to be completed. They say if they fail that and are ready, their attempt to to use a resolution to gain statehood, Australia, United States, Canada, others have come out against it. They would like to force U.S. veto to embarrass the U.S. and isolate the U.S., but the the U.S. will try to get nine no votes, which means it obviates the need for a, a veto. So let's say that they get past the Security Council, and it, it doesn't happen there. Then he says, I'm going to go to U.N. agencies. I'm going to assert our membership like he did in UNESCO. Then he said, if it, uh, as a last resort, he will go to the International Criminal Court. But he was warned this week, and lawyers have told him, remember, once you join that, you become subject to it. And that's why Netanyahu in his speech spoke about the war crimes done by his allies, he's now in a unity government with Hamas, and therefore he could be charged, and certainly the PA, with complicity in, in war crimes. So I think that is something that, that would worry him, and they use the threat as leverage uh, all the time, uh, but it's certainly troubling, and, and you know, Israelis being called war criminals, yeah. and, and you have these charges. I know, you- serious, and I know people dismiss what happens to you, Ed. The truth is that these things can have con- real consequences. All right, Uden, standing by. We'll wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet New Year. And uh, just to confirm, Malcolm, uh, when it comes to an Al Al flight, you'll sit on any seat in, on the plane as long as you're heading to Israel, right? In the right direction. I'm just making sure about that. Egmarch uh, Simatova, we should have a happy, healthy, and sweet New Year together. Amen. And Egmarch Simatova to everybody, an easy fast. And uh, God willing, this Yom Kippur will mark the beginning of real Achdus and Klai Yisrael. Amen. Thank you for that. Malcolm Holmline is, of course, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.